Well, our scripture reading for the sermon this morning is from Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32. Now, just for some background of this text, this is the account of Esau coming to meet Jacob as Jacob is returning to the promised land. Remember, he he had been absent from the promised land for some decades And he is now returning to the promised land, having escaped his father-in-law Laban. And he finds out that Esau is going out to meet him. And then that will lead into the account where Jacob isolates himself and then finds himself wrestling with God. And so that last portion of the text is going to be the focus of our sermon this morning, verses 22 through through the end of the chapter. But for context, we will go ahead and we'll pick it up at verse 1. So hear now God's holy and inspired and infallible word. Moses writes, So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp, and he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. Then the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him, and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies. And he said, If Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 fowls. Then he delivered them to the hand of his servant, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass over before me and put some distance between successive droves. And he commanded the first one, saying, When Esau my brother meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong and where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? Then you shall say, They are your servant Jacob's. It is a present sent to my Lord Esau, and behold, he also is behind us. 
So he commanded the second, the third, and all who followed the drove, saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him, and say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me, and afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present went on over before him, but he himself lodged that night in the camp. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. Thus far for the reading of God's holy and inspired word, may he bless it to us. Let's pray. Father, as we now hear the preaching of your word and consider this account of Jacob wrestling with you and desiring to be blessed by you, as we now consider this question of what it means to be blessed by you, we pray, O oh God, that you would open up our hearts and our ears to understand your word, to apply it to our hearts that we might truly know your blessing. And I pray that you would be with me and that you would use me to edify your people here this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was considering our text this morning, I decided to do a quick 15-minute research project on how often it is that people use the hashtag blessed on social media. And it was kind of interesting. I found that on Instagram, for instance, that the hashtag blessed has been used over 148 million times. So that's quite a bit. Now, on, on Twitter, it's long been recognized that blessed is actually one of the most popular, long-standing hashtags that people use. You find it all over the place. And you see, just an a even cursory survey of some of these posts, whether it's on Instagram or on Twitter or other places, reveals that they usually have little to do with God Himself and almost everything to do with one's economic status or one's accomplishments. And of course, this is usually accompanied by what? The, the standard selfie. 
where they're bringing attention to themselves. But, but you see, all of this shows us that even in our so-called secular culture, there yet remains the persistent belief that there is some outside force or some transcendent person to whom we ought to be grateful, regardless of, again, how shallow we can be in our expression of this belief as a culture. You see, we talk about being blessed. We claim to be blessed all the time as a people. But what does this word even really mean? What does it mean to be blessed by God? And how can we know that we've been blessed by God? Well, Moses here, in narrating the story of how Jacob became known as Israel, he shows us what it means to be truly blessed by God. And we find here in this account at the end of chapter 32 that the blessing of God is found in knowing God as our God. It's found in knowing God experientially as our God. And so therefore, we as His covenant people, we must find our life and we must find our hope and we must find our identity in Him and in Him alone. You see, Moses here is not only reminding the Israelites of what their name truly means, he's not only reminding them of the origin of their name as a people, but he's also reminding them of the full weight and of the full blessing of what it means to be in covenant with God. And so as we examine this text this morning, I'm going to break down this narrative from verses 22 and forward into three parts. We're going to consider a divine encounter. We are going to consider a divine confrontation. And we are going to consider a divine grace as Jacob experienced it here. A divine encounter, a divine confrontation, and a divine grace. And you see, each of these will again remind us of the full weight and of the full blessing of what it truly means to know God as our God. And so first then, let's examine the divine encounter. But in order to do that, we we first need to consider and remind ourselves of some basic theological concepts in understanding how it is that man comes to encounter God. Now, in order for finite creatures such as ourselves, to truly encounter God and to thus truly know God, of course, God must do what? He must first reveal Himself to us. And so doctrine-wise, this makes us think of of the doctrine of revelation, doesn't it? Or the whole idea that God condescends to human beings in order to uncover or to disclose Himself to them. That's what divine revelation is. It's a divine uncovering. In fact, in both the Hebrew and in the Greek, the word that we normally translate as revelation into English means just that. It means to uncover or to unveil. And you see, throughout the Old Testament, we see that God does this through various means, through dreams, through visions, even through hearing an audible voice at times, especially with the prophets and patriarchs. 
These are the diverse manners of speaking which God used in former times, as Paul speaks of in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. And here in our text in verses 22 through 24, uh, we see that God revealed himself to Jacob in this instance. He condescended to Jacob in this instance to reveal himself in the form of what we call a theophany, which is where God appears in a human or angelic form. Look at verse 22 with me. It says, And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. So God condescended in the form of a man. But the first thing that I want you to notice here in now analyzing this is that this theophany occurs while Jacob was all alone. Uh, There in verse 22 and 23, we see that Jacob, what did he do? He sent away his family along with all of his creature comforts or along with all of the so-called blessings of this life. He sent all of those things away from himself. In other words, he he sent away the things that we normally take comfort in in this life. The things that we normally say that we are hashtag blessed by. And so Jacob is now all alone. He's all alone with his thoughts. All alone with his feelings and emotions. And he's all alone with his own conscience. Now, we aren't told exactly why he did this. But we can gather from the context that it most likely had to do with his angst over encountering his brother Esau once again. And that would certainly make sense, wouldn't it? After all, Jacob and Esau were not exactly best bros, were they? As we learn from Rebecca, even in the womb, she could feel what? She could feel them struggling with one another. Then, of course, when they were grown, Jacob persuaded Esau, or tricked him really, to give away his birthright. And then he tricked his own father, Isaac, into giving it to him while on his deathbed. Uh, This is what uh, led Jacob to flee from the promised land in the first place. Because Esau, remember, he was out for blood over this. Yes, he willingly gave it away, but uh, Esau engaged in trickery, especially in that latter instance with his father. And so Jacob now has to go back and encounter his brother once again. And so he isolates himself in his anxiety as he is preparing for what might be coming. I'm sure that this is something that we can all relate to. Most of us, I think, don't like conflict, do we? In fact, if you like conflict, there's probably something wrong with you. Most of us don't like conflict. And when we are faced with it, Uh, What do we sometimes want to do? We we, want to curl up in a ball and go off in the corner somewhere. So perhaps that's what Jacob was doing in his isolation. He just wanted to be alone with the weight of everything that he assumed was coming. And yet, as the text recounts to us, while he was alone and isolated, God came to him. Jacob had this divine encounter. Now again, verse 24 uh, describes this theophany or this appearance of God uh, simply as a man. 
Um, It says that a a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. However, verses 28 and 30 later on clearly imply that it was God whom he encountered here. So Jacob encounters God, and yet God is referred to and appears as a man, which is something that we'll touch on here in a minute. And so in the midst of his angst and anxiety, in the midst of his Isolation, especially due to his angst and his anxiety with what's coming. God reveals himself to him and comes to him. And Moses records here that Jacob then began to wrestle with God in this encounter. And this is often how it works with you, isn't it? Now, of course, God doesn't come to you in the form of a theophany. But God still does condescend and come to you in his revelation. For example, speaking of general revelation, Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 and verses 19 and 20 that what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. You see, all men everywhere, through both creation and conscience, They all encounter God every moment of every day. And this includes all of you as well. As Jay Adams would often say when he's talking about the environment in which the Christian counselor counsels a Christian, uh, he points out that human beings made in God's image live within the environment of God's revelation. That's the environment that they are in, whether they admit it or not. In fact, to be made in God's image means that you are a receiver of God's revelation. And so God is an inescapable reality to you as a human being. So we encounter God through what is often called general or through natural revelation. But you see, we especially come to encounter God through the reading and through the preaching of Scripture. Again, Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 1 through 2 says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. That is again through, through dreams and through visions and through theophanies. He has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. He speaks to you through the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through the preaching of His Word. You see, like with Jacob, the reality of the God-man is the same reality that you are presented with each Sabbath day. And it's the same reality that you all must wrestle with. And isn't it true, again, that like with Jacob here, that reality, the reality of God often hits us the most when we are, in a sense, all alone And by that, I don't just mean when we are physically alone. Uh, Like maybe when we are alone with our thoughts before going to sleep or something. I know that Ray Comfort, when he evangelizes people, he'll often uh, tell them to think about these things before going to bed at night. There's uh, many reasons why that's good advice. Um, But what I'm especially referring to here are those moments when we feel spiritually alone. When we feel the pangs of conscience and the want of original righteousness and especially the threat of God's judgment or His discipline. 
In those moments, God becomes the inescapable reality that we must all contend with. And we especially, again, feel the weight of this in our isolation uh, when, again, the conscience becomes like the worm that never dies that we can't escape from. Uh, I just think of uh, this in relation to my own conversion back when I was alone listening in my car to Ray Comfort's sermon, Hell's Best Kept Secret, 15 or I guess it was almost 20 years ago, up at 14 Mile and Main Street when the Holy Spirit was using Him to nail me with the Ten Commandments so that I had to pull over in that moment and get right with God as He was presented in the Gospel. You see, it's in those kinds of moments when we wrestle with God's existence and with our existence in light of His existence that we learn that He is not to be taken lightly or casually. And that's a major problem in our day, isn't it? Even within the church. People are much too lax much too casual about God and who He is. And dear brothers and sisters, this is why it's actually the trials that we go through that we are to regard, as we're going to see later on, as God's blessing in our lives. Because like with Jacob's trial here, it's when all of our comforts are stripped away. It's when we have nothing else to cling to. It's when we're all alone. It's then that we learn to wrestle with the only reality that truly matters in the end. The reality of God in light of our sin and what we need in light of our sin. And so that brings us then to consider the divine confrontation in this text. And we see that in verses 25-27. through Again, Moses goes on and says, Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, And the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. Now, in reflecting on that, initially this exchange here might seem a little bit odd to us. It doesn't seem to really add up, especially the part where God asks Jacob for his name. It seems a bit strange uh, given this whole situation with uh, the wrestling and with Jacob's demand for God's blessing, for Jacob's name to have any relevance to this. But again, just, just remember for a moment what Jacob is truly asking for here. And then it will make sense as to why God is responding to that by asking for his name. Jacob is ultimately asking God to bless him with a knowledge and with an experience of God as being his God. In other words, Jacob is asking for God to further reveal who he is and who he will be towards him. Jacob is asking God to draw the veil of revelation back even further on himself so that he might find assurance in that in light of what he might be facing with Esau. In other words, Jacob is is saying, show me who you are and who you will be towards me. You see, in Scripture, this, this always will involve the revelation of God's name. For, for example, think of Moses 
at the burning bush, how he wanted the assurance of God's name before he began his mission and his task to to go deliver the Jews under God's leadership. Uh, Moses said, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Again, Moses said, tell me who you are and who you will be towards us so that I may tell it to the people and encourage them when I go to gather them. And so Jacob here, whether he realized it or not at this point, in asking for God to bless him, and assure him he was ultimately asking for God to reveal himself to him through his name. But again, as we read here, God, what he wanted first was for Jacob to draw back the curtain further on himself and to unveil his own name. In verse 26 and 27, again he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he, that is God, said to him, What's your name? Now, we have to be absolutely clear here. God didn't ask this of Jacob out of a lack of information. This isn't the heresy of open theism where God forgets things. No, God's omniscient. God knows all. Rather, this was yet another act of divine condescension, similar to how God condescended in the Garden of Eden to... Adam and Eve, our first parents after they had sinned and said, where are you? Of course, God knew exactly where they were in that instance. What was he trying to do? He was seeking to elicit a confession from them, for them to confess the spiritual state that they had found themselves in in light of what they had done. It's similar to what we might do with our children, right? When we catch them in the act of doing something, we might say, and what exactly are you doing, right? We are looking for a confession, It's the same thing here when God asks Jacob for his name. God was confronting Jacob and seeking a confession. So what do I mean by this? How was God confronting Jacob and seeking a confession by asking him for his name? Well, you have to remember, in the ancient world, names were not given for mere uh, sentimental or aesthetic reasons. Uh, No, names were understood to reveal the essence of someone or something. They were understood to have a a concrete meaning beyond just right sounding nice, which is often why we name our children and our culture. So what then did Jacob's name mean and what did it reveal about his character? Well, in its most literal translation, Jacob means supplanter or overreacher. But in the context of it being a name, it can also be rendered as liar or cheater. And that's certainly fitting for Jacob's character, isn't it? After all, we learn in, again, Genesis chapter 25, verse 26, that Jacob came out of Rebekah's womb grasping onto Esau's heel as if he was trying to yank him back and get into first place, just like a cheater, right? That's why he was given the name. Then again, we have the account of of Jacob stealing Esau's birthright as the firstborn by deceiving both Isaac and Esau. And Jacob has spent now 20 years working for his father-in-law, Laban, who tricked him and cheated him many times over, especially in how Laban tricked him into marrying Leah first. 
In many ways, we can say that Jacob got his just desserts in the person of Laban, didn't he? The deceiver was deceived. You see, his whole life from conception to this very moment was characterized by the sin of lying and cheating, both as he committed those sins and as they snapped back in his face. I think of a lecture I once heard from Jordan Peterson where he compared uh, lying to sort of like stretching out a rubber, bond, a rubber band out at the world, right? Seeking to get your way. And it's just a matter of time before that tension becomes so strong that what happens? It snaps back in your face. And so having his whole life as the context, God asks him for his name and so he gives it to him. Jacob, the liar, the cheater. Or another way we could put it is that he was Jacob, the one who wrestles against God and against His providence, as that's precisely what liars and cheaters do, don't they? They try to warp reality and twist reality as they seek to play God and get their own way. And so God calls Jacob here first to come clean and to confess who and what he is by his name. You see, Jacob wanted God to unveil himself further, but first God required Jacob to do the same, to remove those proverbial fig leaves and to be transparent with the Lord about his sin. And once again, isn't that precisely how it often goes with us? The law of God confronts us, calling us to name ourselves as idolaters, as Sabbath breakers, as rebels, as murderers, adulterers, liars, and as cheaters. And the law of God will also antagonize our sin in this, riling us up so that we likewise find ourselves wrestling with God and His law. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 7 and verse 7, if you'll turn there with me, Romans 7 and verse 7, there Paul says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? The problem isn't with the law. He says, certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. In other words, when the law of God came to Paul and condemned covetousness within him, all of a sudden he had all sorts of covetous passions arising within him. He saw that he was the covetous one. And that's often how it goes, right? God's law says don't do that. And that then brings that action to mind and sometimes our flesh goes, man, I really want to do that. As Paul says, sin revived and I died. In other words, the law taken in itself leaves us in the exact same situation as Jacob all alone and wrestling with God, which spells certain death for sinners such as us. Because we will have to find ourselves identifying with everything that His holy law condemns as we see these records of wrongs within ourselves and as we see these sins stirring within us. You see, dear church, we might try to be lighthearted about our sin. 
but God will allow no such thing. And so like Jacob and like Paul, we must not bury our sin, uh, nor should we expose it and then try to justify it and laugh it off like we so often do. Uh, Oh well, we're all sinners. As if God's going to grave on a curve and it makes what we have done any less. No, we are rather to confess it and repent of it. If we are to truly know God intimately and draw near to Him and be blessed by an experiential knowledge of Him, then we must know and acknowledge our sin which functions as a barrier between us and Him. As Hebrews 12.14 says, without holiness no one will see the Lord. And you see, as we do so in faith, we will find not the judgment of God, but instead we will find the grace and the blessing of God. And so that brings us finally to consider the divine grace in this text. And we see that in verses 28 and 29. Again, Genesis 32, 28 and 29. It says, And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it you ask about my name And he blessed him there. And he blessed him there. So God had grace upon Jacob here by finally extending his blessing upon him. In verse 29, we find that Jacob, after having received his new name Israel, that he then again asks finally for the divine name. Again, as I mentioned before, this is Jacob asking for a deeper knowledge of God as his God or as the God of the covenant. Remember, the covenant idea implies not only that God exists, but that He is your God. He exists as your God. In commenting on this verse and and Jacob's request, uh, Calvin says, Jacob does acknowledge God, yet not content with an obscure and slight knowledge. He wishes to ascend higher. He wants more specificity. This is really the climax of our passage. Jacob wants to know God's name. Tell me who you are. And yet, God responded here by asking Jacob why he wanted to know his name, and then Moses records he blessed him there. And so, if you're like me, I kind of feel like we're left hanging a little bit. It seems a bit vague. Did Jacob receive the name or not? And what's the nature of the blessing that he received? Well, I believe that this is a sort of literary technique here. And it's meant, remember, the the five books of Moses were meant to be read together. This is a literary technique meant to propel the narrative and our reading of the narrative forward. In other words, it's meant to rope us in by asking these very questions. What's God's name? When will we ever learn of it? And so we have to read on to find answers and resolve the tension. And again, as I alluded to a few times before, there are parallels here with Exodus chapter 3, where Moses likewise asks for the assurance of God's name in a situation that was also fraught with much anxiety and angst and uncertainty. And what was the name that God gave to Moses in that instance? 
where Moses asked and then it's recorded that he did give it. Remember, it was that great name, I am that I am, or its shortened form, Jehovah. It's a name that carries with it the full weight of doctrines like divine simplicity, divine unchangeability, and especially divine faithfulness. In other words, God revealed to Moses that that He was the absolute being who had bound Himself to His people absolutely so that they could be assured of His favor going forward and so that they could call upon Him in their distress. The name revealed that God was their God, which is why it's often been called again the covenantal name of God, the covenant name of God. Now, again, the text doesn't indicate that Jacob received that particular name at this time. Many assume uh, he didn't. But it certainly seems to indicate that he came to know and experience the substance of that name. Where do I gather that from? Well, look at verse 30. He goes on and says, So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. You notice the astonishment there. Normally, we would expect a sinner such as Jacob in coming face to face with God uh, to be utterly destroyed. In fact, God's holiness and justice and His unchanging nature demands it. And yet, Jacob has not only seen God face to face, but he has wrestled with Him and then been given His blessing. So how can that be? Think about it, the liar has looked truth in the face and entered into combat with him, and yet he's still standing. Well, again, this can only be considered an act of divine grace. And Jacob recognized that here, saying, I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. You see, Jacob now knew that God was his God. He now knew that God was the God of the covenant. That God was on his side, which is the substance of the name Jehovah. And so he could now face the future with confidence because God had chosen to deal with him graciously. So again, as the narrative says, he names the place Peniel, saying, I've seen God face to face and my life is preserved. This reminds me of another passage that was significant to the Israelites and to us as the church, uh, namely the priestly blessing of Numbers chapter 6, which says, uh, again, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Then we don't usually say this in the blessing because it's then part of the narrative. Moses says, So they shall put My name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. You see, God's grace is manifested in His face shining upon us and in His name being revealed and placed upon us. Those two things are normally joined together, which is why I personally think that Jacob did have the name revealed, though it's not recorded in the text. But again, how is that possible for sinners? If God is unchanging in His holiness, goodness, justice, and truth, how can He be gracious 
to wicked creatures such as ourselves. Well, as we read in the account of Jacob here, it was because of this new identity that had been placed upon him and given to him. Israel, or the one who struggles with God and man, and yet prevailed as that name is being described. Uh, Now, the sense of the name Israel here in Hebrew is God rules or God strives, whereas previously it was Jacob who was trying to rule and Jacob who was striving with all of his lies and manipulation. But now it would be God who would take care of him, for God had identified with him in the covenant. And so Jacob could let go of all of his striving. We could say God tore down Jacob and then gave him a new identity, Israel. And this was a manifestation of pure sovereign grace, wasn't it? Jacob did nothing to earn this status, did he? He himself had to admit before God that, again, he had fallen short. And even in this wrestling match, clearly he wouldn't have prevailed if God had chose to not allow him to prevail. After all, verse 25 says that Jacob's pivot point or his hip was knocked out of socket in the process. That's a, usually a major issue in a wrestling match if any of you men have wrestled or do jujitsu or anything like that. But you see, the only thing that Jacob did do here is he refused to let go. I won't let you go until you bless me, unless you bless me. And so God graciously rendered him the victor here and promised to be with him and to make him the victor going forward. This was to be his new identity, and it was an identity marked by grace. You see, God revealed his covenant faithfulness to Jacob, so that just as he transformed his grandfather Abram into Abraham, so he was transformed from Jacob into Israel, and that same identity would be given to his children going forward, hence why they were called the Israelites. That though Jacob was scandalous in many ways, just as his descendants would be, nevertheless, God had stripped away that old identity from Jacob and graciously clothed him in a new identity. By grace, Jacob found his identity in the covenant-keeping God, and so he came to know the blessing of knowing God as his God. And brothers and sisters, isn't this the same thing that's happened to you in Jesus Christ if you are in the faith? God has stripped away our old identity, the guilt and the pollution of Adam along with uh, the sin that we ourselves had heaped on that mess, our actual sin as well. He's stripped that away and He's given us a new identity as justified, as adopted, and as sanctified. And this Identity isn't something that we've earned by our works. Before God, we are just as crippled as Jacob was morally and spiritually when we wrestle with God. Rather, Christ Jesus has so identified with us in our condition that rather than wrestle with us in our sin and guilt, He has instead taken upon our sin and our guilt and He nailed it to the cross And He has then clothed us with His identity, with His righteousness, as we grab a hold of Him by faith and refuse to let go. Just like Jacob did. And so, dear believer, you are now free in Christ. So stop acting like a slave. Stop acting like a slave to guilt 
and stop acting like a slave to sin. The God of Israel is your God, just as He was the God of Jacob, and He promises to be with you and to carry you through it going forward as you come against Esau or as you come against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Think about it. He's even placed His very name upon you in your baptisms. The name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You've received the full answer to Jacob's question here. You've received the divine name and it's been placed upon you as we witnessed in the the past weeks with the baptisms. And it gave us a time to reflect on our baptisms and, and improve upon our baptisms. The triune God has revealed Himself to you as your God and He has bound Himself to you. And again, all of this is assured to you as you grab a hold of the God-man with the hand of faith and as you, like Jacob, refuse to let go. Uh, This is why the Word weekly and the sacraments periodically are given to you to build you up in that new identity so that you might live out of it. But this is also, as I alluded to in the first point, this is why God will put you through trials and why He calls you to continue the difficult work of mortifying your old nature. It's a reminder, just like Jacob's limp, that you have been transformed by grace and that you are now dependent upon grace. Jacob walked away from this encounter permanently altered and even injured. And his limp was meant, that injury was meant to keep him from depending on his own strength. And God will do the same thing with you. He will give you limps in your life that will remind you constantly that you are dependent upon His grace. Especially as you wrestle through your sanctification. The trials of your faith are there to fuel your pressing into that experiential knowledge of God and His grace by forcing you out of yourself. Again, so you might depend on Him more and more. So dear church, this is what it looks like to be blessed by God. To be in a place of moral and spiritual and even physical weakness at times. And to yet know that God is our loving Father who cares for us in Christ. He wants us to abide in His fatherly love and care. And to not lose sight of it. Don't forget that. Yes, God wants us to be effective Christians in this world. That's really an emphasis right now coming from different corners. And that's true. God wants us to be effective Christians in this world. Uh, He wants us to be in His strength. But you see, knowing His love and knowing His grace in the Gospel is what's going to make you effective and make you strong in Him in this world. It's how we know that we have the blessing of Israel upon us when we look upon the face of the God-man by faith and refuse to let go regardless of our circumstances. Let's pray. O Lord our God, how gracious have You been towards us. We cannot fathom it, though it's clearly laid out in Your Word as 
Your Spirit convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. As we are confronted with Your Word in the law and in the Gospel, Lord, like Jacob, we often find ourselves isolated and alone, wrestling like Paul did with not only our guilt, our record of wrongs, but knowing we have this nature within us uh, that despite uh, the fact that if we are in Christ, we've been regenerated, we, we still see sin at the door waiting to entice us. And yet, Lord, you condescend to us not only in the law, uh, and you do so graciously in the law to point us to Christ, to point us to your Son, the Son of God, who has taken upon our flesh to redeem us. Lord, we pray that, uh, like Jacob, we would continue to hold fast to him, being united to him by faith. And we pray that we would not let go until he blesses us. And yet the good news of the gospel is that he has blessed us. Our baptism shows that he has blessed us. But that should give us all the more reason to not let go, to persevere in the faith, uh, to persevere in our pursuit of holiness. Lord, open up our eyes to see the beauty of Christ, to be captivated by it, and to be transformed into His image from glory to glory, so that we might be encouraged and emboldened to walk forward in this life as we face the world, the flesh, and the devil, to wage a good warfare as we seek to serve you and honor you in this world in the advancement of your kingdom. Lord, work these things within us, we pray, pleading the blood and mercy and intercession of your Son. Amen.